From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton is located on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples. Treaty is about relationships, and the very least we can do in this relationship is acknowledge the people who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. This week, we talk about the importance of resilience, how to minimize the damage of the climate crisis. Recent evidence from the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change suggests that some degree of climate change is inevitable. Reports suggest that a 1.5 degree warming will almost certainly occur, and depending on the scale of climate action in the near future, warming could be higher. The IPCC report describes drastic impacts in various scenarios of global heating, including changes like the death of the coral reefs, increased frequency and magnitude of deadly heat waves, and crop failure, among others. Concerns like these have prompted many Canadian and global communities to adopt resilience planning measures. Global Group 100 Resilient Cities defines resilience as the capacity of individuals, communities, institutions, and businesses to survive, adapt, and grow, no matter what kinds of chronic stresses and acute shocks or single-event disasters they face. Activities that build resilience vary from infrastructure impacts, like floodgates and fire-smart buildings, to economic and social efforts, like improving community cohesion. This week, we'll be providing you with some of the latest information on climate crisis and impacts. We'll also hear from Tara Informer, Sonic Patel, sitting down with Nicole Bonnet to discuss her research into resilience planning on Vancouver Island. But before all that, here are this week's headlines. Canada's federal government has given the city of Edmonton $22 million to develop an urban climate center as part of the Low Carbon Cities Canada project. The center will work on projects such as, quote, retrofitting energy-efficient infrastructure in commercial and residential buildings and creating jobs from low-emission initiatives, end quote. According to climate scientists and preliminary data, this past July was the hottest month in recorded history. The previous record was set in the month of July 2017. Iceland has lost its first glacier to the impacts of climate change. The former Okjurkul glacier spanned 15 square kilometers and now has been reduced to approximately one square kilometer of ice and has lost its status as a glacier. A memorial will be placed at Okjurkul's former location in August. Chiefs from British Columbia are calling on the Canadian government to pull its financial support of the 30-meter telescope project in Hawaii. The construction of this telescope is facing opposition from the Kanaka Maoli, indigenous Hawaiians who are protesting against this project in order to protect the strong emotional, cultural, and spiritual connections they have to Mauna Kea, the dormant volcano upon which the telescope is to be built. 
Berkeley, California, has become the first city in the United States to ban natural and fossil gas hookups for new buildings, with some exceptions being made to first-floor retail developments and certain types of large structures. The decision was partly motivated by the state of California's goal to reach 100% zero-carbon energy use by 2045. The ban will go into effect starting on January 1st, 2020. According to a government minister in Ethiopia, on July 29th, the country broke the record for the most trees planted in a single day, with the estimated number being around 350 million seedlings. The previous record was held by India, with 50 million trees being planted in a single day. This planting push is part of the National Green Legacy Initiative that aims to tackle the issues of deforestation and climate change. Before we dive into Nicole's interview, we'll briefly discuss the importance of resilience in the face of the climate crisis. Data suggests global heating and a smaller temperature difference between the poles and the equator may lead to the formation of less mid-latitude storms. However, as higher temperatures result in more water vapor in the atmosphere, the intensity of the storms may increase. This lower differential between equatorial and polar temperatures can also result in more intense droughts and floods. Higher polar temperatures will also result in the melting of glaciers and ice caps, presenting greater threats of sea level rise and coastal flooding. The Government of Canada has invested in researching climate changes in Canada, having produced a study of potential scenarios and impacts of the climate crisis in a document titled, Canada's Changing Climate Report. This document describes the scope of the changes that Canada will likely endure. The document notes observed temperature increases across Canada from 1948 to 2016. Average projected increases for Canada suggest a 1.8 degree in a low emission scenario to 6.3 degrees in a high emission scenario. Temperature extremes are expected to rise as our hottest days get hotter and our coldest days warm up. This warming will increase the risk of fires in Western Canada, the severity of heat waves, and increased droughts. The report states with medium confidence that precipitation has increased across the nation, while snow accumulation decreased across the country. It suggested that annual projections are expected to increase across the country on average. More intense rainfalls will increase the risk of urban floods, although the report notes the uncertainty of warmer temperatures and smaller snowpacks on flood risk. The rising average temperature in Canada will also result in reduced snow cover and projections estimate that glaciers in the Canadian Rocky Mountains will lose over 75% of their area by the end of the century. This will also cause the loss of sea ice along the Arctic Ocean. The Canadian Arctic Archipelago will likely become the last area with summer sea ice, becoming a haven for animals reliant on it. Warmer winters and earlier snow melts will result in higher winter river flows, while warmer summers will reduce water availability in some places. Global heating and increased carbon emissions are expected to result in the heating of oceans, resulting in more acidic and less oxygenated waters. These changes threaten marine ecosystems, threatening the viability of many jobs in Canadian fishing. Sea level rise presents a substantial threat to coastal communities, although there are places where the coast is uplifting faster than the coast is rising. In places where the sea level is projected to rise, Canadians are likely to experience storm surges and waves with a greater magnitude and frequency. The threat to Canadian communities from climate change are numerous and disastrous. As we acknowledge that some level of climate change is inevitable, 
what can we do to protect our communities? Sonic Patel sat down with Nicole Bonnet to discuss how her research on resilience planning on Vancouver Island can shed some insight into how Canadian communities can prepare for and adapt to a changing climate. Let's listen in. My name is Sonic Patel, and this week I'm joined by Nicole Bonnet. My name's Nicole Bonnet. I'm in a Master's of Arts right now with a concentration in Human Geography and Planning with the University of Alberta. Nicole is a former classmate of mine and was also my TA for a semester. I met with Nicole to discuss her thesis project, looking at resilience planning on Vancouver Island, and why she thinks resilience planning will be important for Canadian communities in the face of the climate crisis. Broadly, what I'm looking at is what are the climate change threats uh, that the regional districts are facing on Vancouver Island, and then what are some of the strategic planning and policy responses to those threats. So that would be a very broad title. Uh, more specifically, what I'm aiming to explore is adaptation integration within strategic policy and plans at that regional district scale on the island. What was it that drew you to this project? I think that climate change is such a timely and complex challenge right now that all of society is facing. And I think that when we think about climate change, we look at places like the Arctic that's experiencing uh, very drastic lows in sea ice, in um, they're seeing glacier retreats, things like that. So I want to kind of reinforce that climate change is something that is important to Canadians, uh, particularly in coastal locations. And I found Vancouver Island to be such a diverse and really interesting location, and it is one of our coasts in Canada, so I thought that that was a really interesting case to explore and to reinforce that this is something that we should be looking into, and it's a very important topic. The idea of climate change resilience isn't common to everyone, so could you briefly just define what that means? Resilience is a little bit of a tough topic. There are so many different definitions. In fact, there's a lack of a common definition for resilience. Mm -hmm. uh, but the one that I like to go to is called evolutionary resilience. So ultimately, that's looking at the ability of socio-ecological systems to adapt in response to stress. So resilience uh, has been used a lot by local governments and other levels of governments and policymakers when they are trying to respond to climate change. So we always hear things like, we want to build resilience within our cities. And ultimately, that is just looking to make sure that you are reducing costs, protecting your residents and assets, uh, infrastructure from the impacts of climate change. Earlier, you mentioned the idea of adaption. Could you speak a little bit about how that's different from mitigation and what the relationship between those two factors are? So mitigation ultimately is a human intervention, uh, as defined by the IPCC, to reduce the sources or enhance the sinks of greenhouse gases. So what mitigation is looking to do is reduce the greenhouse effect and to really lower those the concentration of greenhouse gases that we have in our atmosphere. Sonic here. I'm just dropping in to clarify that the IPCC that Nicole has just mentioned stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a body of the United Nations dedicated to researching climate change and its impacts. Now, let's get back to the interview. Adaptation, on the other hand, is a process that is employed by human systems to kind of avoid harm or at least moderate the harm that is associated with climate impacts and threats. And it's really important to note that uh, currently the global policy approach does focus on climate change mitigation and adaptation planning is still in its infancy. Uh, but it's very important that we 
not only rely on mitigation, but also incorporate adaptation into our responses. Uh, this is because some degree of further climate change is inevitable, so we must adapt to the unavoidable consequences of climate change, and we can't rely on mitigation alone. To explore this concept of uh, resilience on Vancouver Island, what kind of methodology have you adopted? So I'm using a mixed methods approach. Uh, mixed methods ultimately is just using qualitative and quantitative methods for a single research project. So I conducted semi-structured interviews with 13 key actors across the island and there I tried to get two interviewees from each regional district and there are seven on the island so I was missing one interviewee for one of the regional districts. Uh, so then I used those semi-structured interviews um, to kind of get an understanding of what their perspectives are. And then I use a narrative analysis to better understand the climate change threats and some of the policy responses. My second methodology was the quantitative part, and I used a planned content analysis there. So what I did was I collected all the regional growth strategies. Um, there's one regional plan, which is non-binding version essentially, and then um, all of the municipal official community plans and climate change action plans. And I used this plan content analysis to score the plans on the extent of adaptation integration within the plans. In your findings, what are they doing well in these communities that's helping them be resilient to climate crisis impacts? Uh, so a lot of coastal locations tend to rely on hard or structural adaptation types. So that would involve things like seawalls, dikes, riprats, etc. And what I found on the island is that they've actually acknowledged that there are drawbacks to these structural adaptation types. So what they're doing instead is encouraging and pushing for more soft approaches. So that includes things like integrating adaptation within your planning processes and planning frameworks. So that may include things like development regulations, so a setback from the coast where you're physically removing these residents from harm. Uh, they are also using soft approaches like ecosystem-based approaches. So here they are essentially naturalizing the shore, uh, getting away from things like seawalls, uh, using wetlands, and kind of utilizing and leveraging the services that our ecosystems are providing. So that was something really interesting that they did there. There's a lot of environmental awareness on the island, so it seems like there is public support, and that has actually really helped some of the regional districts with getting an acceptance of adaptation because sometimes it tends to be conflicting with other priorities. Uh, so an environmental awareness has been something that they're really leveraging. Another thing that I found they're doing well at is utilizing a local champion. So if there is a advocate for climate change adaptation, that is helping them put in process uh, adaptation planning. And it also helps with the implementation of adaptation, which tends to be lagging across the entire world, it seems like. And in speaking to the stakeholders that you did interview, what, what did they identify as their biggest challenges as they go about this process of building resilience? So it seems like there's a number of different challenges. Uh, one is capacity. So not one of my interviewees described that their region had an adequate capacity to plan for and respond to climate change. So that includes things like a lack of funding, personnel, climate data, et cetera. 
Um, another big challenge, particularly for the smaller regional districts, has been a lack of political will and these conflicting priorities. So when adaptation is not prioritized as a strategic priority, then it's very unlikely that it will actually be embedded in the planning process, and it's very unlikely that anything will be implemented on the ground, because it's very hard to dedicate resources to doing so when there is no political appetite to do so. Um, another challenge appears to be, again, within that capacity area, a lack of data. So it seems like they're missing a little bit of scaled data. So it's very important that we are using reliable and up-to-date climate data when we are making these policies. That's been a challenge for them. Um, another thing which is not really applicable to other areas, but uh, Bill 27, which is the Local Government Statute Act. Uh, so there's a mandate that the province has came out with, um, and that is essentially to incorporate emissions reduction targets within official community plans and regional growth strategies. So here it's important to note that there is absolutely no mention of adaptation. So the overwhelming focus on mitigation at the provincial level seems to filter down to the regional level. So they're lacking a little bit of provincial support. And then uh, the function of regional districts, just as regional bodies, has kind of challenged their ability to plan for climate change adaptation and those impacts. So it's really hard for them to work outside of a service area. Uh, ultimately, these service areas have to be voted on by the residents, so it must be supported by the regional board and the electors. So if there is no appetite for adaptation, they ultimately have no grounds to act. So you touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you had any more insight into this idea of when you're dealing with an island of multiple communities, as they're doing this resilience planning, are you seeing a lot of cooperation that's emerging between them? So at the regional scale, it seems like some of the regional districts themselves are cooperating. So they're sharing data. So if they get um, a risk assessment done or if they look at rates of erosion on the coast, they will share that data with the neighboring um, regional district as well as with the municipalities. So it seems like there's quite a bit of cooperation, data sharing, um, and they're just really communicating to each other, uh, how, so these are some of the impacts we're experiencing, what have you done uh, that has been beneficial to you, how are you dealing with it, what are some of the impediments that you face. So there's a lot of communication at that local government scale. I would argue that there needs to be a little bit more cooperation between the provincial government and then the local governments, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, data sharing, funding, provincial, or sorry, policy guidance, things like that. Vancouver Island, obviously a very unique community. They've got a lot of their own challenges. What do you think the key takeaways are for other communities that are considering resilience planning, but maybe on the East Coast or may not be on a coast at all? What can they learn from this, from your research? So I do talk about how my research can be applied to the readers of my thesis as well as decision makers and other local governments. So if they see that they are facing similar uh, climate change threats and similar challenges when it comes to planning for climate adaptation, then they can apply some of the recommendations that I have. Uh, and some of those recommendations and key takeaway messages are 
One, it's very important to have a local champion and political will. So this is when public awareness and education becomes important so that we can grasp that adapting to climate change is necessary. If you are trying to respond to climate change itself, you cannot rely on mitigation alone. So education is really important. Another thing that I thought would be a key takeaway message is that there are a lot of drawbacks of structural adaptation types. So it's important that we sever our reliance on hard adaptations, or at least use a combination of these more soft approaches. Uh, another, I guess, huge takeaway message would be that when you integrate adaptation within your strategic planning framework, this will facilitate early action uh, that is more cost effective. It, uh, assists with a more organized response to climate change and it offers greater flexibility. So we can use our planning system um, to protect our residents against the climate change threats. And when you do so, that facilitates that early action again. So it's important to integrate these climate change considerations broadly and more specifically into your strategic planning framework. So you can definitely use that as a tool. Yeah, with a topic like this, I find the idea of the responsibilities of different orders of government to be pretty interesting. Yeah. And you've, you've touched on a couple already, um, starting at the community level with uh, community champions and also this idea of political will, which in a lot of ways is representative of, of social will. Mm -hmm. um, but then combining that with provincial supports and national supports and regional supports, what do you think the relationship between each of those bodies should be with resilience planning? Do you think it should emerge from a local level, or do you think it should be top-down instituted? Uh, so a lot of the scholarship that I've read on this, uh, what they tend to find is that local government should be the one initiating these uh, climate change responses. And that's largely because they are the level of government that is closest to the citizen, but also because local governments, so municipalities, are bearing the brunt of these climate change impacts. So they've got a better idea of what they need to respond to and what uh, they need to do to protect their residents. So once, and I guess that takes into account, if you say local government, uh, regional bodies as well. So once they have established what their vulnerabilities are, then they can come up with, I guess, these responses. So that would be to embed these adaptation and mitigation goals within their policy uh, and try to implement it. So what the challenge becomes is actually implementing these goals. So making sure that they don't remain as... Uh, these kind of high-level vision-setting uh, statements, this is where provincial support comes into play. So I think that a lot of the local governments across Canada are challenged by a lack of capacity. So they've got like a vast array of responsibilities, but they've got limited sources of revenue. So this is where funding from the uh, higher levels of government comes into play. Um, so funding from higher levels of government, you also need a little bit of policy guidance, uh, some recommendations, and things like that. And I think that that is a good system and good way that these different levels of government could interact to enhance their resilience. Looking into the future a little bit, like what do you think is the near future for resilience planning? So a lot of people talk about resilience and sustainability in the same way. So when sustainability first came out, it seemed like it completely took over our planning system. Uh, and that is, of course, in a good way. I think that the same is happening with resilience planning. So it tends to be catching on a lot. Uh, the challenge with resilience for me is that lack of a common definition. So I think that if we are to move from theory into practice and actually use resilience to build and enhance our preparedness to these climate change impacts. Our decision makers and our readers need to 
really understand what resilience is and understand that it can be applied and it has already been applied in practice. So I think that it is just still in its infancy, but I think it's going to catch on like wildfire and be very, very beneficial, particularly in the face of a changing climate. As you've probably noticed, a lot of the discussion around sustainability planning often incorporates these other concepts for people that are climate science deniers or skeptics, these ideas of like economic benefits or social benefits. Do you think resilience planning can find some way to appeal to these other interests that aren't pure climate crisis reactionary? So I think if you look at it as a conceptual framework, so uh, when people like to translate resilience theory, well, this is what I have found in the literature. Uh, so when scholars and decision makers are trying to translate resilience theory into practice, they use this conceptual framework where you've got systems, agents, and institutions, and that will allow you to pinpoint areas where you can build and enhance resilience. So for people who are climate change deniers, you could look at those different elements within resilience theory, and you could argue that you are using these um, best practices according to these different elements of that building urban resilience to increase your cost effectiveness um, in the long run, to increase the efficiency of your infrastructure, your systems, make sure that your institutions are promoting an environment in which there is knowledge sharing, uh, greater access to information streams. So I think that there's definitely potential to move away and kind of use this resilience theory to justify um, some of the steps that you're taking to build resilience uh, to those people who may be climate change deniers. In a lot of the research I'm doing, uh, moving away from resilience, but I guess kind of in the sense that resilience and adaptation can be used interchangeably. Uh, sometimes I don't even really mention climate change at all. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that oftentimes elected officials may be a little bit opposed to, or these decision makers may be opposed to, uh, taking adaptation and mitigative efforts uh, solely because they think that it conflicts with other priorities. So we should be fixing our roads first before we do this. Climate change is a distant threat. And so a lot of the times what my interviewees even said is that when they are phrasing these things and these projects and strategies, they are completely avoiding the term climate change. And they're saying by doing this, we're actually going to decrease our cost. We're going to protect our residents and our assets. And we are going to increase the efficiency of our infrastructure and our ecosystems within the future. So it's almost avoiding the word climate change altogether. And... I guess you just got to do that sometimes. It's sad, but you got to. What's next for this research project after your thesis? Do you foresee it that being the completion of it, or do you think there will be further work, not just this field, but specifically related to the kind of research that you do? Well, I'm hoping that it will spur more research projects, so specifically uh, how adaptation is being incorporated into strategic planning and policy. And I think that that needs to be something explored at a greater scale, knowing that I only did uh, Vancouver Island. Uh, but after I defend my thesis, I'm hoping to publish a few articles from my thesis. So hopefully that will, again, fill some gaps in the literature and contribute to our understanding of climate change adaptation planning. I think that there will be a lot more research conducted on the relationship between strategic planning frameworks and how adaptation is integrated, particularly knowing that adaptation planning is growing, although it is still in its infancy and implementation and practice is lagging. But there is growing interest, I think. Nicole's research helps answer a crucial question for Canadians. 
How can our cities and communities prepare for the upcoming climate crisis? And what can we do to reduce the effects of a changing climate on our lives and lifestyles? Thanks to Nicole for sitting down with me, and thank you for your time. This has been Sonic Patel with CJSR Radio and Terra Informa. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments about the show, send us an email to Tara at cjsr.com, tweet us at Tara Informa, or check us out on Facebook. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website at terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteers and Tara Informers, Sonic Patel and Hannah Cunningham, for helping out with this week's episode. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run and survives because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM. Visit CJSR.com to learn more about the station and consider a donation to keep environmental news like this on the air. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.